0: and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: Well, it's... Very important to make sure you have a written policy prohibiting harassment, discrimination, and retaliation, and that you distribute it to everyone, and that you provide ongoing anti harassment training. Make sure remote workers are included in the training sessions. I know in these crazy times, I mean, the training component with all uh, people have to do getting back to work, it often falls by the wayside, but employers really need to realize that without being able to prove that your workforce has received anti-harassment training, you may lose a valuable defense to any harassment claimer suit that is filed.
0: That's Judy Holmes talking about the importance of having anti-harassment training in the workforce. We'll hear more from Judy in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. Is your answering service helping your practice do more with less? Does your answering service function as a seamless extension of your practice? Improve the patient experience increase staff productivity, and enhance your practice's communication with CCSP. CCSP has built their services and features specifically to help save on your bottom line with a focus on measurable, high-impact results. With packages starting at only $35 and the ability to scale as little or as much as needed, CCSP is ready to learn how you measure success and build a custom solution to meet it. Learn more at callcentersalespro.com MGMA. Is your accounts payable process causing headaches? Tree provides HIPAA compliant, easy to use, end-to-end accounts payable and payment automation solutions that reduce cost by more than 75% they also increase visibility and control, and mitigate fraud and risk while improving cash flow. MineralTree is the leading AP and payment automation provider in healthcare, and they'd love to show you why. To learn more, visit mineraltree.com/mgma. Our guest today is Judy Holmes an attorney with a special focus on employment law for healthcare practices. Judy's here today to talk about the unique legal and HR challenges facing medical practices in a remote and hybrid work environment. Judy, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Now, first give our listeners an idea about your background and also where your focus has been during the pandemic.
1: Well, I've practiced law in Denver for over 30 years. As a defense attorney, I spent most of those years representing employers in employment-related lawsuits and claims. I now spend my time helping clients stay out of litigation. I work with um, healthcare practices primarily. I help them develop risk management strategies, and I help them implement policies and procedures that are going to help them avoid costly conflicts with their employees. Last year, at the beginning of the stages of, of the uh, pandemic, I spent the majority of my time helping practices deal with layoffs and coping with liability issues. This year, as businesses and practices are ramping up again, my focus has been on helping practices you know, bring back employees to work and hiring additional staff members.
0: Okay. Well, labor relations and employment law are such broad areas. Uh, For the purposes of this podcast, let's focus on a few different areas. You've mentioned you've been focused on back-to-work issues and hiring, so let's start there. Um, Are there any unique challenges right now facing employers in light of the pandemic?
1: Oh, there certainly are. I think anyone listening to this podcast can agree. We're, We're all facing issues we never thought would arise, and we're dealing with situations that two years ago just simply didn't exist. Um, I know that right now, many medical practices are having a difficult time finding uh, qualified candidates to help fill their job openings. In many areas of the country, it's still more lucrative to stay home and receive unemployment. And, you know, it's also been so difficult for workers with children to get back to work because of childcare and homeschooling issues. Uh, the situation will gradually imp- improve, I think, we know that, but employers are just going to have to be creative to attract talent. I know some practices have tried bonuses as an incentive, but that often backfires. Um, some practices find success by offering things like flex schedules and telework opportunities. It's just, I, I think some, it's just time to think outside the box until we all get back to normal.
0: Okay. Now it has been a very unique time. I know that at MGMA we've been working remotely now, for uh, gosh, I think about fourteen months or so. So, what has it been like in interviewing applica- applicants? I mean, what has that been like in this pandemic era? Um, what have you seen from that perspective?
1: Well, there's certainly more interviews being conducted remotely by Zoom conference right. calls, and and uh, but. But there are other, uh, employers are also facing a big challenge in addressing COVID-19 in their interviewing and hiring processes without violating state or federal law. I know it's a minefield, and those rules keep changing, so it's really hard to keep up. Um, The EEOC, which is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has issued guidance for employers on some issues relating to the hiring process. So first, a little good news, um, the EEOC has taken the position that taking the temperature of an employee or applicant is not considered a medical exam. So for in-person interviews, many employers are taking that precaution. Uh, Second, the EEOC has clarified that an employer may ask employees and applicants whether they have received the COVID-19 vaccine. But with applicants, Uh, the inquiry should stop there. That's because the Americans with Disabilities Act and similar state laws prohibit employers from asking applicants questions that are likely to reveal the existence of a disability. So it's okay to ask whether they've been vaccinated, but if they say no, just leave it at that. Because if you ask, well, why haven't you been vaccinated? their response might reveal a disability, and that's not an issue you sh- that should arise at the interview stage of the hiring process. Uh, medical questions and testing should not be conducted until after an applicant has been offered a job. So third, the EEOC has taken the position that after a conditional offer has been given, if the medical testing confirms that the applicant has COVID-19, the employer may in some instances withdraw the offer or postpone the start date.
0: Hmm, let's clarify something there because you were talking about what, what you can ask, what you can't ask. So can employers require that new hires be vaccinated? So if we're gonna bring you on board here, um, here's the shot, go into the stall over here. How, how does that work? What does the law say?
1: Yes, the EEOC has advised that at least under federal law, employers may require that new hires be vaccinated by the first day of work. So employers may even let applicants know of this requirement for the interview, maybe make it part of the job posting, say, uh, you know, that 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 will be required, but employees, uh, employers should include a statement that You know, reasonable accommodations will be considered for those who can't be vaccinated for disability or religious reasons. Now, I need to point out that the EEOC is the federal agency that enforces many federal laws. Those laws apply to employers with 15 or more employees. Each state has its own laws governing employees with fewer than 15 employees, and in general, they track pretty closely with federal law. But it's also important to note that some states and municipalities have additional restrictions on what an employer may do. So it's important to check uh, your state law too. And okay. maybe check with your employment counsel on this.
0: Okay, that's good to know. Thanks for sharing that information with us. It can get a little tricky out there. So that's good to know. Um, I want to go back to something I brought up earlier, we were talking about remote work. So, so many people are continuing to work remotely, um, what are some of the issues employers should be concerned about in terms of workplace behavior?
1: Well, I, I think we all realize that the pandemic has changed many aspects of the way we work. And but even as the effects of pandemic lessen, it seems as though working from home is here to stay. And although um, there are benefits, remote working arrangements can create um, additional headaches for employers. For one thing, uh, there's a potential for workplace harassment. It remains the same, or maybe even increases, with remote work. When remote, um, when you know people work remotely, things get relaxed and less formal, and that can create an environment which conduct, conversations, you know, jokes, emails end up creating a situation that generates a claim of harassment. Uh, you know, and, and I think, let's face it, coping with COVID issues also brings extra tension and sometimes tempers flare. That can result in conduct that might be considered harassing. On the other end of the scale, of course, flirtatious behavior may occur that wouldn't ordinarily occur in the formal office setting. It's important to remember that emails, recorded Zoom calls, and other forms of communication are considered business records. So in litigation, those records are usually the first thing the plaintiff's attorney has to be produced. So as a defense attorney, I know firsthand how devastating it can be to be defending a harassment lawsuit when the emails and other communications from my own client have helped prove the plaintiff's case of harassment.
0: Okay. Wow. I mean, that's a lot to think about there. So... Yeah, it'll keep everybody on their toes and checking their their uh, laws and rules and handbooks. So, let's talk about that for a minute. What what can an employer do to minimize their risk?
1: Well, it's very important to make sure you have a written policy prohibiting harassment, discrimination, and retaliation, and that you distribute it to everyone, and that you provide ongoing anti-harassment training, make sure remote workers are included in the training sessions. I know in these crazy times, I mean, the training component with all uh, people have to do getting back to work, it often falls by the wayside, but employers really need to realize that without being able to prove that your workforce has received anti-harassment training, you may lose a valuable defense to any harassment claim or suit that is filed.
0: Okay. Well. What other challenges are there with remote working situations that we maybe haven't covered yet? What else is out there?
1: Well, wage and hour issues present another big benefit uh, for employers yeah. when dealing with remote workers who are non-exempt. Now, non-exempt employers are those that you pay hourly. They're not on a salary. So they, got a, they, they are paid you know, a certain rate for the first 40 hours in every defined work week and then time and a half after that. So. Those workers must be paid for all the time that they are performing work. So it turns out uh, that so many businesses are increasing the number of teleworkers on staff. And there are so many problems with uh, timekeeping that the Department of Labor has released updated guidance on telework for hourly employees. So um, that's a sure sign that they're going to be conducting more audits to make sure employers are following the rules. The Fair Labor Standard Act requires employers to pay non-employees exempt for all time work, but it's up to the employer to track it accurately. I know that is so difficult to monitor uh, monitor when, um, when you're dealing with remote workers, make sure they're not you know, let's say they, they clock out for lunch, and they wander away, then they come back and make phone calls, or or they, um, they clock out at the end of the day, and then they do some phone calls. That's all a compensable time, and over a period of time, that can add up. So to stay out of trouble, employers need a firm policy for all your hourly employees, whether working remotely or not. They are not to perform any duties when they're not clocked in, and that they must accurately account for all hours worked. Now it's, some of my clients say it's it's helpful to have a computerized time tracking system for remote workers, but whatever you use, train your employees on their responsibilities to track their time accurately. And it's also helpful, I I know some people are doing this, for you to require employees to sign a statement on their timesheets that says, I have included all time I've worked in this specific period of time.
0: Um, I want to dig a little bit deeper into remote working. There have been many studies already, and there's been a, a lot, some re- initial research being done that, you know, the genies out of the bottle, as they say, people have been working remotely uh, for many. Uh, they've seen productivity go up. They've just seen a comfort level maybe that they didn't have previously. So let's just call it like it is. It's here to stay. So What do you see as some of the advantages and and some of the disadvantages for a healthcare employer?
1: Well, certainly being able to work at home during a pandemic has been a godsend for so many employees, and it's really helped employers with workflow and with keeping their offices up and running. Lately, I've seen employers sort of reimagining their businesses and looking at jobs that can be performed well remotely. One obvious advantage to having some workers work remotely is that it cuts down on the office space needed to operate efficiently. Uh, and Because some workers consider the opportunity to work from home a big benefit, it can be an incentive to, um, for somebody to like, accept a job or to stay working for you if they're allowed to work remotely. With remote workers, it may be harder for, you, for your management staff to maintain accountability and to measure performance. So some modifications of the staff evaluation process may need to be made, so management staff can be more effectively they can more effectively measure expectations. Now, there's a negative aspect to having staff members work remotely, and that is there can be a breakdown of a positive culture uh, office culture. You know, practice managers and administrators they work so hard to develop a positive atmosphere over time, and and they 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 build this uh, positive atmosphere with cooperative environment. And when everybody comes to work, they collaborate, they communicate, they work well as a team. So it's easier for a management staff uh, when everyone's on the same page. But with remote work, there are usually fewer interactions with staff members and less accountability to management. When some workers are working remotely, it's just simply harder to maintain that, you know, that team spirit and engagement with the practice's goals and future. So one way to lessen the negative effects of remote working on the office operations and to prevent the breakdown of your office culture is maybe to require employees to spend at least some time in the office every week. Maybe two half days or one full day or something and you might even start arranging some social get-togethers now that we can socially get together more. or maybe some in-person strategy sessions, just to keep your staff more engaged with each other and with you. One final thought on remote work. If you intend to have some of your employees working from home, it's a good idea to add a policy in your employee handbook outlining your telework rules. It'll be easier to discipline employees if everyone has a clear understanding, just clear clear guidance on what you expect. Mm
0: You were talking earlier that um, different forms of harassment have been a problem uh, with the remote work taking place. So is there any case law yet regarding workplace behavior? Um, Maybe that's occurred during the pandemic, anything that's on your radar?
1: Yes. In fact, it turns out that a huge percentage of COVID-related suits and claims have been brought against healthcare employers by their employees. One source that I read um, reports that nearly a quarter of all COVID-19 workplace lawsuits have been filed against people uh, with the healthcare entities. So the healthcare industry is certainly a big target. Now in terms of the types of claims, according to the EEOC, COVID-19 pandemic um, events have resulted in a a big increase in some types of harassment, particularly with respect to Asian American workers. So you just really need to keep keep, uh, a lid on, on harassing conduct in your workplace. There's also been an increase in the number of retaliation claims brought by employees who claim they were subjected to adverse actions like termination by their employers for reporting harassment or for reporting an OSHA safety violation or for requesting an accommodation for a disability. In addition, there's been an increase in the number of disability discrimination claims filed against an employer uh, who does not accommodate a disabled employee uh, who might be more susceptible to COVID. The increase is particularly great in the healthcare industry, as you might understand. There are two, two cases, just two examples. Um, for for one, an, uh, one case, an employee, employee of a Connecticut hospital filed a lawsuit against her employer for disability discrimination. She alleges that her employer denied her request for an accommodation to allow her to keep working her administrative position from home. Because she has cancer, and cancer obviously makes her more susceptible to COVID. So she claimed, okay, she's been working for all these months very well, very successfully at home during the shutdown. And now just because the, the hospital is bringing other people back, she wanted to continue that status and, and, and is contending that that would be a reasonable accommodation for her. In another case that's pending, a New Jersey home health care company was sued by one of its occupational therapists. Because of her asthma, she wanted to have an exemption from treating COVID-infected patients, because obviously that, that could be very dangerous for her, and the employer refused that accommodation. So although both of those cases are still pending, and we don't know the outcome, I don't think I'd wanna be defending the employer. It seems to me a reasonable accommodation could have been made by both employers.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, fill us in then, what is an employer's responsibility when um, dealing with an employee who does have a disability?
1: When an employee is faced with an employee, employers uh, are faced with an employee's request for an accommodation, because of a disability, the important thing to remember is that the definition of disability under state and and federal laws is very, very broad. It can include things like asthma and other respiratory issues, uh, diabetes, immune deficiencies, high blood pressure, and many other conditions that make someone more vulnerable to the effects of COVID. So when you're faced with a situation involving an employee with a disability, you need to enter into what's known as the interactive process with the employee to see if you can find a reasonable accommodation that is not an undue hardship on the practice. Um, And that's just simply a a dialogue, a, a conversation with the employee so that you can see what you can work out. Look at lots of factors, such as the job type, the duties, you know, do they have patient contact or is it an administrative job? What accommodations have you offered other people? Uh, Can you offer a job modification or even a temporary leave of absence? It's always a case-by-case determination. And now that we have the vaccine, we might see more religious discrimination cases brought by employees who won't be vaccinated because of their religious beliefs. So just like the situation involving disability, we enter into the interactive process. An employer has an obligation to attempt to find a reasonable accommodation that's not an undue burden on the employer. And just like uh, disability cases, it's a case-by-case determination.
0: Okay. Well, let's not uh, beat around the bush then. So what can a practice do to guard against lawsuits, to guard against any claims that may come at them? What can they do?
1: Well, employers are particularly vulnerable to harassment, discrimination, and retaliation suits and claims. So it's important to minimize your risk specifically in those areas. I look at it as like a three-step approach. First step, conduct an internal, informal audit of your employment policies and procedures from hiring to termination. Just look at how you are conducting things. Make sure you have a hiring procedure in place that prevents discriminating against um, like an applicant based on uh, a protected category. And what are those protected categories? Well, under federal law, they are race, national origin, sex, including sexual orientation and gender identification, religion, age, uh, age over 40, military service, disability, which is both physical and mental, pregnancy and genetics, and some states, have other protected categories such as height and weight. So make sure you check your state's law too. So ask yourself, do you ask appropriate questions to the interviews? Do you have documentation to prove that you had a non-discriminatory reason for making your hiring decisions? Look through your management and discipline policies. Are you treating similarly situated employees the same without discriminating based on protected categories? Have you documented the legitimate non-discriminatory reasons uh, for making specific personnel decisions? And then look at your termination procedures. Can you demonstrate that you base your decisions on objective criteria and that all employees are held to the same standards? Do you document well? Does your documentation make sure, uh, make it clear that your termination decision was non-discriminatory and that the employee had sufficient warnings? Step two is to review and revise your handbook, update it on a regular basis. If you make changes to the handbook, make sure each employee has received a copy of it and that they sign an acknowledgement. I have received a copy, I have read it, I understand it, and I agree to abide by it. Then step three is uh, step up your staff training. Make sure that everyone in your office understands your policies prohibiting discrimination, harassment, retaliation, and bullying, those in charge of any aspect of hiring should receive specific training on lawful hiring techniques because mistakes made during the hiring process can result in costly litigation. And also it can result in you hiring the wrong person. But it's well worth the effort to ensure your hiring staff understands how to conduct the process lawfully.
0: Okay. You had mentioned uh, the practices handbook. So if you're recommending reviewing and revising that handbook, give us an idea. What are some of the elements of a thorough employee handbook? What does it need to have in it?
1: Well, every practice is different and state laws are different. So the policies that go in the handbook will vary. I don't favor the, uh, the kitchen sink approach, where you, know, you put every single policy and every single procedure in detail in, in the handbook. Because you know the handbook ends up to be so big and thick and cumbersome and complicated, no one reads it, and it's impossible to enforce. But there are some policies I think uh, are important to help employers define performance expectations. First, I think it's important to include an at-will employment statement. That is, both employer and employee may terminate the employment relationship at any time, with or without notice, for any reason or for no reason at all. That helps protect an employer from a breach of contract or wrongful termination lawsuit. Then, a comprehensive policy, of course, I'm I'm sounding like a broken record, but uh, prohibiting the discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. Policy should include a statement that all incidents of conduct uh, of that kind of conduct must be reported promptly. Now, why do you want the aggravation? Why do you want to encourage reporting? Because wouldn't you rather get the report and take appropriate action before the employee files a charge of discrimination with the EEOC? The uh, policy should also have, that, that particular policy should also have a statement that employees must cooperate with the investigation, which you you have a duty to perform, and that the practice will not retaliate against any employee for reporting incidents. You should also have a policy on standards of conduct, the employee's responsibilities and your expectations. Now, some practices have a a separate code of conduct, but you may just want to include examples of unacceptable conduct with the including but not limited to language in it, in the list. You'll definitely want to include work hours, attendance expectation, and overtime rules. Many practices make it clear that all overtime must be approved in advance, and that's okay. But I want to point out that you shouldn't have a policy that says overtime not approved in advance will not be paid because that would violate the Fair Labor Standard Act. If if they work the hours, non-exempt employees work the hours, they have to be paid. So you pay the employee for all hours work, but then you can make it a disciplinary issue. You should have a policy about appropriate use of your computers and other equipment, and advise your employees that they should have no expectation of privacy with respect to any type of use of your equipment. Advise them that you may inspect it at any time without notice because that usually has a chilling effect on at least some of the misuse of things like emails. You should have a well-written social media policy, and you might want to check with your counsel to help you write that because um, it's tricky because an employer should not try to over-regulate And so you might need some guidance on this and never require an employee or an applicant to give you passwords or grant you access to their social media accounts. Over half the states actually have state laws prohibiting that, but it's just a generally bad idea. You should have clear um, leave policies. They should be spelled out. uh, Give clear guidance on the requirements uh, to qualify for those particular types of leave. You can... Also include a general statement of benefits, but I wouldn't be too specific because they often change year to year depending on insurance and those kinds of things. So you you don't wanna have to reissue your handbook every time uh, the benefits change. Just include a statement at the end of it, just that for more details, see the office manager, something like that. You're gonna wanna include a policy on alcohol, marijuana, and other drugs. There are state and even municipal laws relating to this issue, so this policy should be reviewed by your council. And finally, there should be a general statement that you may change policies in the handbook from time to time. Just give them notice they may change. So um, again, this has, hasn't been an exhaustive list of pol- policies, but I, I think they're some of the most important.
0: I would agree with that. I I really believe you hit the high points there and wanted to give an opportunity because you did provide so much information. If any of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you to uh, learn more about this or to stay up to date on some of these guidance and rules that are out there, how would they do that?
1: Well, for any listener who's interested, I I do send a short newsletter. I, I I don't overdo it, but I do send a newsletter a couple of times a month with practice management tips, tricks, some updates. So if you do want to receive it, just email me at judy, J-U-D-Y at jholmeslaw.com. You have to put the J in there before Holmes. Um, anyway, I'd be happy to send it to you.
0: Okay. That sounds great. Well, Judy, this has been fascinating. A lot of great information. So thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Judy Holmes. You can hear Judy speak on employment law at MGMA's upcoming Human Resources Certificate Program. It's going to be held June 15th and 16th. Go to mgma.com slash events to learn more and to register. And thanks to Mineral Tree and to CCSP for sponsoring this week's show. Mineral Tree is the leading AP and payment automation provider in healthcare. To learn more, visit mineraltree.com/mgma. And CCSP is ready to learn how you measure success and help you build a custom solution to meet it. Learn more at callcentersalespro.com slash MGMA. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at MGMA.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at mgma. Daniel. MGMA Insights presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com membership. Thanks. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. slash analytics today.